This week in New York City, a longtime defender of free speech was honored by her peers. My guest on today's program accepted the Judy Bloom Lifetime Achievement Award at the National Coalition Against Censorship Benefit. To mark that moment, she joins me on the podcast today to talk through some of the big free speech issues of our time. Nadine Strawson is the former president of the American Civil Liberties Union and a senior fellow with the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression. Her new book is Free Speech, What Everyone Needs to Know. Nadine Strawson is my guest today on Lean Out. Nadine, welcome back to Lean Out. I'm so honored to be a repeat visitor, Tara. I'm a big fan. I, I listen to your podcast regularly. Wow. Thank you so much. And, and thank you for coming on. I thought it was the perfect moment to have you back on the program, both because you have quite a few new exciting projects right now, uh, but also because we are at a, a perilous moment for speech right now, both in Canada and the U.S. But let's start with the good news first. By the time this podcast airs, you will have accepted the Judy Bloom Lifetime Achievement Award for Defending Free Speech at the National Coalition Against Censorship Gala in New York City. Congratulations, Nadine. And, and how are you feeling about this honor? I'm feeling embarrassed and humbled, even as you said it, Tara. Last year, the award was given to one of my lifelong heroes and uh, world-renowned human rights champion, R.A. Nair, who, among other things, was the executive director of the ACLU when we handled the infamous or famous, depending on your point of view, so-called Skokie case. In the late 1970s, the ACLU came to the defense of a group of neo-Nazis to demonstrate in Skokie, Illinois, a town that had not only a large Jewish population, but many of them were Holocaust survivors. Ari himself a Holocaust survivor courageously led the charge to defend freedom, even for the thought that we hate. And although it was an easy victory in the courts of law, because it involved what the Supreme Court has called the core principle of free speech, viewpoint neutrality or content neutrality, that government may never suppress speech solely because of dislike, even loathing of the content. Uh, so we won all the way up to the United States Supreme Court, but it was a very tough case in the court of public opinion, as it still is today to defend mm. freedom of speech. And dare I say today, especially for anti-Semitic pro-terrorist speech, which unfortunately has been abounding. So, Tara, you asked me about my own personal feelings, and I immediately segue into the issues. I can't help it. <laughs> I was happy and honored and thrilled to accept the award for one reason only, that I was persuaded by my colleagues and friends at the National Coalition Against Censorship that it would be helpful to their organization and to the free speech cause for me to accept this award because then my friends and colleagues come and don't donate money to the organization. Uh, but I, I don't want it at all to be about me. This is about the work that all of the 60 organizations that are members of the coalition 
the National Coalition Against Censorship, and the countless volunteers and some staff members who are supporting the work of those organizations now needed much more than ever. If I can um, say, you know, I am active in and supportive of many free speech organizations. I have never seen it as a zero-sum game. They all do really important work, often in collaboration with each other, always complementing each other. And sadly, there is too much work to go around. But what is essential about the organizations that I support, including the NCAC and its constituent members, is neutrally defending all free speech rights for all ideas, all people, all topics, that viewpoint neutrality principle that I referred to earlier as being enforced by the courts. These are organizations that are doing the same in their organizational capacity. NCAC and ACLU and others are still coming to the defense even of speakers and groups who use their free speech and free association rights to attack civil liberties, including free speech. Well, it is inspiring work, and uh, you set a wonderful example for the rest of us. So, so thank you for that. Um, as I mentioned, you have a lot of projects on the go right now. It's it's quite a moment. I mean, you have a new book out, which we'll get to a moment in a moment. Uh, you also have a new three-hour documentary film series, "Free to Speak," which we'll link to in the show notes. And you go on quite a journey for that project. In the first episode, you look back at the Stasi, the secret police of East Germany, and a former political prisoner tells you he who sleeps in democracy wakes in dictatorship. How does this resonate for the moment we are currently in, in North America? Para, I would have to say we are always in that moment. Speech and freedom more broadly are always under assault uh, from all ends of the political spectrum. Sometimes the assaults are more dramatic and more vividly violent than at other times. And I think that's certainly true now. As a result of the brutal Hamas terrorist attacks in Israel, we have sadly seen a rampant increase in not only anti-Semitic speech, which I defend as a matter of freedom of speech, much as I loathe the message, but sadly, we have also seen an increase in speech that even the most ardent free speech defender including myself, and even more importantly, including the United States Supreme Court, would agree is not constitutionally protected mm. and should not be. So thank you for giving me an opportunity to make a point that is so widely unknown, and especially by critics of robust free speech, who usually are attacking a straw person, a caricatured version of strong free speech. I can't tell you how often I've had to defend against charges that, oh, America's standard of free speech and the ACLUs and yours are so ridiculously absolutist and there are no exceptions whatsoever and you even deny that speech can do any harm. The answer is no, 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 no. The more you 
you learn about free speech jurisprudence, and I'll, I'll use the First Amendment in the United States as an example, but I will make this point at the outset, Tara, it is not nearly well known enough the large extent to which the core principles underlying the First Amendment jurisprudence, including that key viewpoint neutrality principle are Mm. echoed in the legal systems of countries around the world, and especially strongly under United Nations treaties, international law treaties (laughs) that protect freedom of speech. Uh, Not coincidentally, the United States played a big role, not only in the drafting of the United Nations documents, but also in their interpretation by various United Nations officials and bodies. And since those instruments have been ratified by just about every country in the world, I think it's really important to note uh, the surprising degree of overlap between what is the only international free speech law, because we have regional bodies of free speech law, such as the European Court of Human Rights and the American System for Human Rights. But the United Nations treaties are the only ones that transcend regional as well as national boundaries. And so enough on that point, but just when I talk about First Amendment principles, I hope that your audience will understand that they have wide resonance around the world and not only within the United States. But anyway, the more you know about those principles, the more they accord with common sense, which is probably why they are picked up in international law as well. And and basically, the speech that does the most harm, that is the most dangerous, can and should be subject to punishment. Conversely, the censorship that is the most dangerous and does the most harm is also outlawed. So what is the speech that does the most harm? It's speech that directly and imminently causes certain serious specific harm, such as intentional incitement of imminent violence in today's campus climate and and larger climate with the demonstrations, and I refer to intimidation of many Jewish students on campus, one subcategory of speech that satisfies what's often called the emergency principle, right? The speech Mm -hmm. directly and imminently threatens certain specific harm. One really important example of that that unfortunately we're seeing uh, the line crossed in too many situations is what the court calls a true threat. Uh, The word true to differentiate it from the rather loose way we use the word threat in everyday speech. But this is when a speaker intentionally targets a particular audience, uh, an individual or a small group of individuals or identified individuals, and intends to instill on their part a reasonable fear that they will be subject to attack. By reasonable, that means it's objective. We're not talking about an unusually thin-skinned subjective fear. And sadly, we even last week saw an arrest of a Cornell University student Um, And prosecution by the United States attorney, the FBI was involved, local and campus police were involved because the student had posted online a series of messages that were not only virulently anti-Semitic under the viewpoint neutrality principle, that would not have been a justification for punishing them. But when you get beyond the content of the speech and you look at it in its overall context, 
it did satisfy that context-specific concept of a true threat. He specifically identified a, a relatively small facility on campus, a dining hall that was frequented by Jewish students because it served kosher food. And he specifically said that he was going to bring a gun and, and shoot and engage in beheadings of people at that facility. Uh, so I think that crossed the line to being a true threat. And we've seen accounts of similar incidents, including at my own alma mater, Harvard, there was a widely circulated tweet that showed a single Jewish student walking across campus being menacingly crowded in upon by a group mm -hmm. of pro-Palestinian demonstrators. Now, I'm open-minded enough to recognize, you know, maybe that was taken out of context, maybe it was doctored, but, you know, based on the evidence that we've seen so far, it certainly warrants investigation as unprotected expression. Mm. I mean, there's just so many issues to unpack in this current moment. And I, I want to just stay for, for one moment with the TV series, because I thought it did such a wonderful job of looking at all the reasons why free free speech is so, so important. So I want to just spend a moment on medicine and an extreme example of dogma and groupthink and even perhaps vested interests in medicine that almost blocked a scientific discovery on stomach ulcers that eventually won its two researchers the Nobel Prize in 2005. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, thank you so much for mentioning the, the film again, Tara. I am so honored to be uh, involved in a project that where most of the credit goes to the indomitable filmmakers uh, who traveled around the world, Kip Perry and Elon Bentoff, and the film was produced by the Free to Choose Network. And as you indicate, um, they went, first of all, the, the episodes come from Every single continent, with the sole exception of Antarctica, involved topics uh, all over the map, including medicine and science, the example that, that you noted, and some of them go back in history. I think that the discovery at issue in this case uh, was 20 years before they finally got the Nobel Prize, something like that. And is it, 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 before I go a little bit more into the details, I think folks should have this in mind in the context of COVID and all of the debates that we've had about what was its actual cause, what is an effective solution, what are effective governmental societal responses, what are counterproductive. We're, those have all been subject not only to debate and discussion, which is appropriate, but sadly to a lot of repression. A lot of what's now being accepted as at least plausible, if not demonstrably true, was in my country at least strongly stifled by government and social media as being dangerous misinformation or disinformation. And so it's sobering to look at a past example that now it's much easier to look back with 2020 hindsight and say, oh my goodness, the scientific establishment, the government establishment, the public health establishment was clearly wrong. How could they have been so wrong? And it had to do with what the causes of 
stomach ulcers were. And there may have been some, um, uh, there definitely was financial incentive on the part of the pharmaceutical industry to continue to be putting out certain medications that um, assumed that the it was not caused by a particular bacteria. And when scientists in Australia did experiments, including injecting, one scientist injected himself with that bacteria uh, to prove that it was what caused the stomach ulcers because um, the scientific establishment was rejecting his experiments that involved other creatures, other, you know, the lab rats and so forth. Um, So he really was putting his, his own health perhaps uh, even beyond his health on the line in order to to demonstrate. And once that was accepted, many, many, many years later, it became so much easier to provide a permanent cure as opposed to in the past, people were just taking, I think they called them acid blockers and they would just keep taking them forever and they would never actually get rid of the stomach ulcer, but just make sure that for the rest of your life, you were paying the pharmaceutical companies for this very temporary so-called treatment. Such an interesting example. And you also touch on the arts in the film. And it was wonderful to see you cover both comedy and hip hop, two subjects very dear to my heart. And I, I raised the arts because in Canada right now, I would say literature in particular has become dull and dogmatic. And mm-hmm. I'm hearing from artists regularly that there's a lot of fear and self-censorship mm-hmm. taking place. Mm-hmm. I think people who fail to advocate for freedom of expression in the arts forget that the sensorial mood could cut in the other direction. Mm-hmm. And so for this film, uh, you look at Kenya in 2018 and a a film that was banned there. Tell us a little bit about that. The film was created by a woman director, and it was a love story between two Kenyan women. She spoke so beautifully when interviewed for the film and in other contexts about how in Kenya, there where one of the national mottos is love. It's part of the national, you know, like in France, it's liberty, equality, and fraternity. In Kenya, I can't remember what the other values were, but one of them is love. And, and yet she said in all of the films that we see, we've never seen, first of all, it was fairly rare, she said, to see a love story between Kenyan people as opposed to Europeans and, and, and so Americans, uh, but never had there been a love story between two women. And the film was called Rafiki. It was subject to censorship because homosexuality is very strictly banned in Kenya. And the film shows clips of top government officials just simply pronouncing that this is antithetical to Kenyan values. So, you know, yes, we support love, but there are certain kinds of love that are illegitimate. And there is a film censorship board quite proudly. I mean, that's what it's called in the United States. And I think in Canada as well, the word censor is kind of a dirty word, right? You would never admit that you're censoring a film. Maybe you'd say we're protecting children and, or national security. Uh, but no, it's a proud censorship board. And somehow Rafiki managed to slip past the censors. They did get permission. You have to get prior permission to make a film. And they, they passed that 
that threshold, the director thought maybe, you know, it just slipped through the bureaucratic cracks. But once the film was made, there was a crackdown. They were not able to show it, except that they did retain a lawyer who challenged the censorship law and ultimately won a victory that allowed the film to be shown long enough that it could qualify for the Academy, not the Academy Awards, for the Cannes Film Festival. And sure enough, this wonderful Kenyan filmmaker and her her cast went off to Cannes where they were lauded and the film shows Kate Blanchett speaking at the Cannes Film Festival, talking about how moving and inspiring Rafiki was. By the way, when it was in order to be eligible, it it has to be shown, I think, for one week or two weeks. And that was part of the court victory that they won in Kenya. And every single showing of the film was completely sold out, which shows something about the futility of censorship. It inevitably draws more more attention to the work that is threatened than it otherwise would have received, which is one of the reasons why it's it's counterproductive, because first of all, it is having an unduly suppressive impact there. I'm sure there were many, many more people that wanted to see it than could see it because of the sensorial efforts. But on the other hand, the censors don't win either because they, they'll never succeed when there's a human desire to convey a message. And, and that was such a beautiful example, Tara, because I think in this country, in the United States, and probably in yours as well, too many pe- younger people who have the luxury of not having faced as much censorship as those of us who, you know, I was a child, but I do remember the Cold War and the threats against leftist speech. I certainly remember the civil rights movement. I was a bit older then and repeated censorship in the most brutal ways of those who were demonstrating peacefully against Jim Crow and racial apartheid. I think today younger people assume that oh, it's only opponents of human rights and opponents of LGBTQ rights who are the ones who have unpopular views and they're the only ones who are afraid of censorship. So I think it's really important in an international and historical context. And I would say, even to this day, censorship, even if it is asserted to be for a positive value, right? In Kenya, they're saying, you know, we're censoring because it's consistent with our view of love. That's a positive value. Uh, But predictably, it disproportionately is going to impact minority voices and minority views, especially in our democratic governments, where appropriately, the government is responsive to majoritarian powers and establishment powers. It's those who are dissonant, which in some communities are those who are advocating LGBTQ rights. If I can just give one example from the United States, um, we have a huge raft of laws that have been passed in the past couple of years at the state level that have restricted curricula and library books in schools and public libraries, but in uh, in particular K through 12 schools and studies that have been done by very reputable organizations, including the American Library Association, 
Association show that the most targeted books are those that are written by or about LGBTQ plus authors. So Rafiki, sadly, you know, many Americans may look at it, many Canadians may look at it and say, that thank goodness we don't have those problems in our countries, but we do. Yeah, indeed. And, and it's a very worrying trend. I, I want to talk now about, about your new book, Free Speech, What Everyone Needs to Know, which is written in a question and answer format. It just does such a fantastic job of explaining free speech. I'd like to put a few of these common arguments against free speech to you. And some of them are very relevant um, to the Canadian context right now. I guess the first one is is the argument that free speech is a tool of the powerful rather than the powerless. You've already talked about this a little bit, but but walk us through, break this down for us. Thank you so much for phrasing the uh, the book. And if I'm, I should have had a copy in front of me. I'm just going to reach a little bit and get one. I really love the cover here because. I wanted an image that was showing free speech in a positive, joyous vein, right? Not in an angry protesting vein. Of course, I support freedom of, of, of protest. And I also like the fact that this is an image that has a very diverse cast of characters and of particular importance to me, young people. I mean, raising their voices. And I like the fact that it has the American flag, because I think one of the greatest things about this country is the freedom of speech that has allowed us to make a great progress toward toward human rights. We still have a way to go. But uh, the, the extent to which we have come closer to our national ideal of liberty and justice for all is precisely because of freedom of speech. And that segues exactly into your question, Tara, that if you have political power, if you have economic power, you don't have to be so reliant on the right to protest, the right to petition, the right to dissent, freedom of assembly. You, The majoritarian government officials are much more likely to act in your behalf anyway. If you, you know, sometimes people will ask me, Nadine, why are you always defending freedom for unpopular speech like hate speech or pornography um, or extremist speech and disinformation? And the answer is, if you are saying something that is popular with whoever wields the power in your community, in the governmental unit that you're living in, you're not going to be subject to censorship. It's only when your speech is unpopular with those who wield power that you will be subject to censorship. Now, on many college campuses in the United States, they are overwhelmingly liberal to, or more you know, to the left of, or I know we use those terms differently in our two countries. So let me say, you know, on the left end of the political spectrum in the United States, um, the term is usually progressive. Surveys show that the overwhelming majority of campuses are just overwhelmingly progressive in terms of faculty and, and students' affiliations. And so the unpopular expression there is conservative speech, speech that's advocating policies that are unpopular on campus. And so I think students and faculty members have a really unrealistic view in the overall scheme of things about uh, for whom free speech is important, because you zoom out from 
the campus community, even to the local city or, or town, certainly state in which the campus is located, not to mention the United States as a whole. And their views are the ones that are unpopular. I have to keep reminding my progressive friends that, you know, half the people in the United States have been voting for Donald Trump, you know, and and again, these these laws that have been passed in dozens of states around the United States are disproportionately suppressing not only LGBTQ plus speech, but also speech by black authors and about themes of racial justice. Um, By definition, those who are minority, whether in terms of identity factors, in terms of belief or political affiliation factors, they are, by definition, since you are in a minority, you are going to have to depend on the individual right to raise your voice in order to, with the hope of persuading the majority and the government officials to adopt your views. I can go through the history of human rights in the United States and every single movement for human rights throughout U.S. history has been subject to censorship. And it was only when the United States Supreme Court started to strongly protect free speech, which didn't happen until quite late in our history. For most of U.S. history, the First Amendment free speech guarantee adopted in 1791 were just words on a piece of paper that were ignored by the government. But only when that started to change did we see rapid strides toward human rights. But subject to censorship and, well, you know, the abolition movement, um, ultimately, that took a bloody civil war to advance that. Then we had uh, the women's suffrage movement, the movement for labor rights, for the right to form unions, opposition and uh, to World War One and World War Two, pacifists, any protester against wars, any person left of center, center. We had very strong movements to suppress socialists during it was during so-called red scares. Um, around the World War One era, and then again around World War Two and the Cold War. I already mentioned how the civil rights movement was subject to enormous speech suppression. The movement for reproductive freedom, for contraception, for women's rights, LGBTQ plus rights, all of these movements were subject to censorship, but through lawsuits that challenged the censorial efforts, when these movements were able to organize and get public attention for their messages, including through peaceful demonstrations, they started to change people's attitudes. And that led finally to advances in human rights. It is interesting. I mean, one of the other examples that I hear a lot in Canada in terms of objections to to freedom of expression is that um, so many of us arguing for freedom of expression believe that the best response to offensive speech is counter speech. But the pushback to that is that counter speech unfairly burdens minorities who are targeted by hate speech. Mm-hmm. And, and you address that in the book. How do we grapple with that concern? You know, it's so mystifying to me, Tara, because I, the idea of counter speech, I think, was first articulated in a compelling way, or at least in a way that got a lot of public attention by Supreme, historic Supreme Court opinions 
back at the beginning of the 20th century, written by Justice Louis Brandeis and Oliver Wendell Holmes, the first great free speech exponents on the Supreme Court, uh, starting as dissenters, but ultimately their views were adopted by a majority in the second half of the 20th century. And they are the ones that that said the appropriate answer to speech you hate is not to suppress it, but to respond to it. Education and persuasion are going to be not only more consistent with individual liberty, but more effective because we're, after all, our goal is not to stop certain words from being expressed. Our goal is to change people's attitudes and subjecting them to punishment is very unlikely to change their attitudes. Brandeis very presciently back in 1927 wrote an opinion. It was essentially a dissent adopted unanimously by the U.S. Supreme Court in 1969, in which he said, you know, if you want to stop hatred in particular, you're just going to increase it by punishing and attempting to silence the hater. That repression breeds more hatred. The path toward safety is through persuasion and more speech. And I think about that every day now when there is an understandable concern, certainly on my part as an individual, but I think for, you know, every decent member of society to suppress the rampant anti-Semitic speech, the hatred, uh, but also the violence, the terrorism, that the brutal terrorism that we saw from Hamas and some um, some violence that we're seeing um, in this country and around the world. And, and Brandeis, way back in 1927, said the path towards safety, as well as the path toward advancing human dignity and equality is through, not through suppression, but education. And neither he nor anybody else that has advocated that approach has ever said, oh, and by the way, the responsibility for the counter speech is on the part of the individual or the group who has been maligned. Not at all. It is for any of us who oppose hatred any of us who oppose violence, any of us who advocate equal dignity for all have a constant responsibility. Uh, and when I say responsibility, I'm not talking about a government enforced obligation. I'm saying as, as responsible members of a pluralistic society in which we are doing our bit to advance both peace and, and equal human rights, we should constantly proactively be using our free speech rights to do whatever we think is effective in a particular situation to reduce the impact of hateful or violent advocacy. And that can often mean ignoring the hate mongers, right? Not just answering them back. Um, I think one wants to make a strategic judgment about what are you trying to accomplish in a particular situation. And experts who specialize in responding to hate mongering and reducing hatred in our society have said that to students on college campuses, you know, a white supremacist is going to come speak on your campus. Um, they, they, we had a Richard Spencer was making 
on campus tour a few years ago. And so the Anti-Defamation League and the Southern Poverty Law Center put out brochures to college students. And they said, we understand it might be very tempting and it may feel morally satisfying to have some confrontational counter protest where you're trying to shout him down and deplatform him. But that you are just feeding into his strategy, his tactics, which is to gain attention. And, and you're just amplifying the message by drawing that kind of attention to it. It would be much more effective to just ignore it, you know, deny him the oxygen that he's seeking to receive. Now, I think it's important to note that many Minority group leaders themselves have said that it has been a wonderful experience for them to raise their own voices, to defend their own dignity, and to face down those who are attempting to strip them of it. And they have uh, minority group leaders have encouraged students to find their own voices and their own sense of self-confidence. Uh, one notable example was Barack Obama. Obviously, he's president of the United States. He has a, had the self-confidence that a college student might not necessarily have. But when he spoke to college students, he was urging them to develop those capabilities if they really wanted to make a change in society overall, that rather than retreating to a safe space, quote unquote, that they should develop the self-confidence and the resiliency in order to engage in counter speech. But that would be an opportunity, certainly not a responsibility. And this leads me into something I really wanted to ask you about, which is how this all plays out online. This is currently a huge topic in Canada as the government works on new legislation that's on the horizon, uh, the online harms bill. So an initial proposal granted a digital safety commissioner the power to block access to websites. This is something that Twitter Canada in confidential government consultations that were made public through an access to information request from law professor Michael Geist. In these documents, Twitter compared the proposed policies to that of authoritarian regimes in China, Iran, and North Korea. There is a real push in this country right now from some journalists to clamp down on abusive online speech. And the file is now with our Justice Department. So in your book, you've tackled this issue. And, and the question raised is, shouldn't government have more power to restrict social media because of its unprecedented power to convey harmful speech. How, how do we think through that? And Tara, I've been following what's been going on on this front in your country, in my country, in the European Union, Australia, you name it. And to put it in historical context, I think it's really important to, to remind your audience members that throughout history, every time there is a new medium, which by definition makes it easier and less expensive for more people to have more access to more information and ideas, both as communicators and recipients. That's always been seen, first of all, as a great opportunity for those of us who are free speech supporters and supporters of human rights, but it's always been seen as a challenge by those who are currently wielding power, not only government officials, but the established media. And you, you commented that journalists have been pushing for 
restrictions on social media. And I certainly see disproportionate attacks from the so-called legacy media upon online media without any acknowledgement that these are their competitors, you know, that there's a vested interest in muting the voices of this powerful and popular new medium that has sucked away the advertising base of the of the mainstream media. And I, I defend their free speech rights to do it, but I think we have to be a little bit, um, you know, not not cynical, but understanding what some of the concerns are. And to put it in a historical perspective, you know, when the printing press was invented, it was seen as being so dangerous and some of the rhetoric that was used then is it is shockingly similar to rhetoric that we hear now about the online medium uh, you know the kinds of dangers and disruptions including disinformation and and hateful speech and speech that's undermining community values and more recently we saw similar attacks against the broadcast media against cable against satellite and so forth so every medium is simply that. It is a means for conveying communication. And some of the communication is positive and some of the communication is negative. Yes, it's true. It's easier to communicate disinformation and hate speech online, but it's also easier to communicate factually accurate fact-checking information and counter speech to counter the hateful messages. Now, where I do think that there is a significant difference between the online media and and its predecessors is that it is so dominant that it really has become the major platform for the exchange of ideas and information, including in our democratic governments, between government officials or candidates for official positions and their constituents. And to me, it is concerning that these powerful private sector actors would have so much power to make determinations uh, that government would not be permitted to make, uh, that we're going to exclude certain viewpoints, we're going to exclude certain perspectives, we're going to exclude certain speakers. But it seems to me you only make the problem worse if you inject government into that equation, because the government is predictably going to exert its pressure on these companies to take down what is inconsistent with government policy. We talked earlier about suppression of so-called disinformation about COVID when we were talking about the, the past example covered in the Free to Speak film series. And to this day, we see in my country, and I know in yours and many others, constant pressure from government officials to for social media companies to take down either you know the indirect pressure in in my country but more direct uh, is being proposed in yours and, and others where government itself would just directly take down what it considers to be disinformation about electoral matters about scientific and health matters and that's so antithetical, not only to individual liberty, but to scientific inquiry. I mean, the scientific method really depends on 
all ideas and all information being out there. Certainly democracy. I mean, I find it staggering that so many people say, oh, but government should be free to block disinformation about elections on social media because that undermines democracy. Well, it seems to me it's a frontal assault on democracy for government to serve as what George Orwell pilloried as the ministry of truth, right? deciding, you know, what's good for you and me to know. No, in a democracy, it's we the people who are supposed to tell the government what we want it to hear, not the other way around. So I think that if people could draw back a little bit, have an historic perspective that we've been through this time after time after time, and with with every new medium and with 2020 hindsight, we always come to realize that, yes, freedom of speech has its risks, but empowering government to suppress speech that doesn't rise to the level of the emergency standard that I discussed earlier because of more vague speculative fears that it might lead to harm, um, that giving government that kind of subjective, broad power is much more dangerous than the danger of the speech itself. And I, I want to close today, Nadine, on the idea of defending free speech when it's unpopular, something you've done throughout your career. As we were mentioning earlier in the conversation, this these values are being put to the test right now with the rise in anti-Semitic speech. So I'm not at this moment talking about any incitement to violence, just repugnant anti-Semitic speech. Now, you recently published a piece at the Free Press with Pamela Paresky uh, defending the speech rights of anti-Semites. You yourself are the daughter of a German-born Holocaust survivor. I found that piece very moving. I just want to read a couple sentences from it. Dialogue is better at defeating cruelty than silence. Discouraged as we may be about the power of such goodwill, history leaves us no doubt censorship is guaranteed to fail. Why was it important to you to make that statement right now? Because I care so passionately about countering anti-Semitism. And I genuinely believe, Tara, based on my study of history as well as current events, that the only hope, it's not guaranteed, but the only hope for countering anti-Semitism is through information and persuasion. And I do see a lot of the rhetoric that is occurring on college campuses reflects a complete ignorance of history, the history of anti-Semitism, the history of Israel, the history of the conflicts between Israel and the Palestinians. And I've also read a lot about what it takes to move somebody away from a hateful, discriminatory ideology. I wrote a whole book about hate speech, and for that project, I steeped myself in memoirs and biographies and TED Talks by and about former white supremacists, former anti-Semites, former hate mongers of various sorts, and who had seen the error of their ways and become committed to spending the rest of their lives to try to undo the damage they had done, including by forming organizations, one of which is called Life After Hate, based in Chicago, and it consists of nothing but former leaders of 
organizations that were white supremacist, uh, anti-Semitic, had other hateful ideologies, and they're committed to trying to redeem others. And there's a there's a there are constant themes that run through all of those narratives, which accord with common sense. And that is that you are not going to change somebody's mind by throwing them in prison. I shouldn't have to say this, but in Europe, and I know under Canadian law it could happen. I don't think it has happened recently, but in Europe, people are still being put in prison uh, for saying things that are deemed to fall afoul of their hate speech laws. That's not going to change somebody attitudes. We know from other crimes as well that sadly people tend to come out of prison with more hardened attitudes and being, you know, less disposed toward constructively reintegrating into society. You're certainly not going to change somebody's mind by shaming and shunning and ostracizing as occurs through the pervasive so-called cancel culture. In fact, you're probably not going to change their minds by lecturing at them or preaching at them. It's a very slow, painstaking process. For me, it would be painful. I don't have that kind of patience. I admire the people who do, who engage in extremely protracted conversations and and questioning sessions with those they're trying to wean away. Uh, You know, one example is Megan Phelps Roper, who was born into the so-called Westboro Baptist Church. Forgive me, I'm going to quote their their hateful slogan, God hates fags. And um, that was their website and their motto. And it's a family-based religion. So her entire family, as well as her entire religious upbringing, which was, you know, she was just steeped in this ideology when she was in her early 20s, because she was relatively young and conversant with the online media, she was deputized to go on to Twitter to try to recruit people for the Westboro Baptist Church. And through that that experience, she was reached out to in particular by an Orthodox rabbi in Israel who just started asking her questions in a very respectful and compassionate way, not respectful of her ideas, but he wasn't showing disrespect. He was respecting her basic humanity and reasoning capacity. And he just asked her which Bible verses lead you to that belief that God hates fags. And he, she explains in a very moving memoir in a series of TED Talks how he led her to reexamine the Bible verse and to question her own beliefs. And gradually her own re-examination persuaded her that she had been wrong and she she left the church. Uh, it's a very dramatic story, but that's that's very, very typical. And so, you know, some of my friends will say to me, isn't it hard for you as a Jew and the daughter of a Holocaust survivor to defend free speech for anti-Semites? You're doing it despite the fact that they're anti-Semites. And I say, no, I'm doing it because I care so passionately about trying to help them find a way out of that hatred and toward, uh, you know, complete acceptance and uh, of the equal dignity and equality rights of Jews that I don't want them to be censored because that is going to increase 
their anti-Semitism and their propensity toward violence. I, I earlier mentioned Justice Louis Brandeis's path-breaking decision or opinion back in 1927. He wasn't specifically talking about anti-Semitism. He was talking about hatred more generally and how the path to safety and equality lies through speech, not through suppression. But I think it's noteworthy that he was the United States Supreme Court's first Jewish justice. He was a leader of Zionism worldwide. In fact, he was even recruited to be the first uh, president of the state of Israel. So he certainly had those concerns in mind when he made the more general pronouncements. Well, Nadine, thank you so much for a wonderful conversation today. Thank you for your work. And so lovely to see you honored with this award in New York. Thank you so much, Tara. It's a real honor to be your guest. Lean Out is hosted by myself, Tara Henley. And this week's episode is also produced by me. If you value independent journalism, please consider subscribing to my Substack at tarahenley.substack.com. 